Stanford University. to uh, share with you some of uh, my work uh, that I've been doing for the past few years, which has been focused on uh, what I think is one of the really salient uh, ways that we engage with music. Um, and that is uh, the um, music's uh, evo evocation of uh, autobiographical memories. Um, so this is from uh, a paper by John Sloboda just surveying uh, a variety of individuals about uh, the functions of music in their lives. And um, in this sample, about half of them reported that um, they value music for the fact that it reminds them of uh, past events, of value past events, and then a variety of other uh, primarily emotional functions that, that music serves. Uh, so I think that music evoked autobiographical memories are a very uh, powerful uh, way of eliciting emotional uh, responses. Um, okay, so just an outline of the talk today. Um, the, uh, uh, first I'm going to start off with behavioral characterization of music evoked autobiographical memories. So essentially the paradigm that uh, we use in the laboratory to examine them. Um, and then uh, uh, present a neural characterization of the experience of music evoked autobiographical memories. Um, then, in the second part of the talk, I'm going to use a model of how music moves around in tonal space. So the system of major and minor keys that makes up the music that we hear. And I'm going to use that model to uh, identify brain areas that are following the, uh, the structure of the music as it's moving through tonal space as a way of um, further examining this link between music and memories. And I'm going to uh, conclude with some uh, very recent work um, that actually uh, illustrates that this model can be used to identify brain regions uh, that are engaging with the music on a variety of time scales, uh, each of which characterizes somewhat different psychological processes. Okay, so um, how do we screen for music evoked autobiographical memories? Uh, I should say that everything I'll talk about today has been done with uh, undergraduates uh, who admittedly are not as uh, far removed from their memories as others, um, I'm now trying to pursue this work uh, across the lifespan. Um, okay, so what we do is we take 30-second uh, uh, excerpts uh, of music that was on the Billboard Pop and R&B charts, um, and we randomly choose these excerpts uh, from a time period when the subject was between 7 and 19 years of age. Uh, these are actually the 30-second previews that you can uh, get from the Apple iTunes Music Store uh, when you want to uh, 
listen to a piece of music before you buy it. Um, so we play each excerpt, and immediately following each excerpt, um, subjects uh, indicate how familiar the music was, how memory evoking, so how autobiographically salient it was, whether they found it pleasing, um, and uh, how vivid any associated mental, visual mental images were. For those songs that a subject identifies as either weakly or strongly autobiographical, um, uh, we follow up with several forms to try to get at the content more precisely and also give people the option to provide written descriptions of their memories. So some of these follow-up questions are, does the uh, music remind you of a specific event, a person, or a more general time period in your life? Uh, does it have emotions associated with it? If so, which emotions? And then importantly, how strongly did you just experience those emotions? Subjects also provide those written descriptions. So using this strategy of selecting these songs at random, on average, about 50% of the songs are familiar. Um, and about 30% of the songs evoke some sort of autobiographical memory. Uh, so this is actually really convenient from an experimental standpoint, because we have three categories of songs. The unfamiliar ones, those that are familiar but not memory evoking, and then those that are both familiar and memory evoking. So we can try to tease apart uh, the uh, effects of familiarity from autobiographical salience. Um, so this is just summarizing across uh, the subjects, the aspects of the memory. So in general, people are reminded of, of a person or multiple people and uh, general time periods uh, in their lives. Um, when probe more directly about the type of person, generally it's friends and very often uh, significant others. Perhaps not too surprisingly, all those uh, boyfriends and girlfriends. Um, so when we look at the uh, emotional uh, properties, songs that we play in general, so this is both familiar and unfamiliar songs, are experienced as neutral or tend towards being experienced as pleasing. Of those songs that evoke memories, um, and subjects are asked to endorse the statement, the song often evokes an emotion, in general there's agreement with that statement. Um, and then when asked whether the associated emotion was experienced in the moment, uh, people tend to say it was experienced somewhat or uh, fairly strongly. Um, here's a long list of the emotions we probed. So the most common ones were happy, youthful. The third most common one was nostalgic. Um, Fred Barrett, a graduate student in the lab, has now followed this up with a paper that's coming out in Emotion, looking at music about nostalgia, which is an interesting emotion because although it's overwhelmingly positive, um, in about 15 to 20 percent of the cases, um, there's also a negative uh, valence component to it, typically sadness. Uh, in this particular sample, the negative emotions don't really uh, set in until uh, down here in the tail. So by and large, we're looking at positive emotions. Uh, okay, now some of the memories are really quite uh, detailed. 
this first example is someone uh, describing a lifetime period. So this was a popular song during the summer when I was in the fourth or fifth grade. It just reminded me of the park where I spent most of my summer. Um, in other cases, they're extremely specific, like this one down here, where this person was reminded of a friend from high school in the car at a specific intersection of Diablo Boulevard and Novato Boulevard in Nevada waiting at a red light. Okay. Um, actually, I, I just realized now, I, I went to Google Maps and got a picture of that intersection, but I forgot to put it into this uh, presentation. <laughs> um, okay, now for some uh, subjects, uh, sets of songs tell stories. So if you look at all the narratives from the various songs that were presented to that subject, uh, you can piece together a bit of their life narrative. So here is a subject describing periods of her life. For this particular song, she simply wrote, I was in junior high, uh, in response to this song. I was not quite 18 yet, and my boyfriend seemed like everything for me in this world. I hadn't gone to college yet, so he was all I knew. I was young and crazy, and I was so in love, so in love. And finally, um, I was finishing high school, starting college away from my boyfriend. We talked on the phone a lot, so the damsel madly in love. And then this song. <laughs> experiences here, and um, so the objective is to try to understand what's happening in the brain while um, a person is going through, uh, you know, this reliving of their life. Okay, um, so just to set the stage for uh, the neuroimaging experiments, um, I think it's important first to point out that multi, uh, the music evoked from memory experiences are really multifaceted, and um, so ahead of time one might uh, expect the multiple brain areas uh, should be involved in interacting. Um, so we can talk about brain areas like the auditory cortex, uh, which may be involved primarily with hearing the music, uh, decoding the music, if you will. Uh, but then we may expect for action systems of the brain, so the premotor areas to become involved, um, particularly in the case of familiar songs. So when you hear a familiar song, you may find yourself singing along in your mind, imagining the words or imagining the next notes, generating expectations. And we know that those types of imagery processes are associated with activity in the premotor regions. Um, there's a very strong correlation between how strong people report the memory to be and the vivid vividness of uh, accompanying uh, visual images. So uh, we may expect um, visual regions to also uh, be activated by those types of imagery processes. Obviously we're dealing with retrieval of memory content in order to be able to piece together that remembering episode. And then uh, um, finally 
uh, we're also dealing with emotions that are elicited by the music. Um, these may range all the way from you know, just particular enjoyment or displeasure with a specific piece of music uh, or a uh, particular genre. Um, and they may uh, also include things like nostalgia, which is quintessentially an emotion that's associated with memory. So, to the extent that all of these different types of processes engage different uh, neural networks, all the interacting neural networks, we might expect to see a fairly widespread activation. Uh, but really what motivated me uh, in this work uh, was a very particular hypothesis, and that is that music, memories, and emotions are linked in the medial prefrontal cortex. So um, this would be a, a cross-section through the uh, middle of the brain, um, the front of the brain, back of the brain, um, and so this is the medial uh, prefrontal cortex. Now, why might one expect for music, memories, and emotions to be linked in the medial prefrontal cortex? Uh, so there are several pieces of, uh, I think, suggested evidence. Um, this is a summary from a, uh, a review article um, which lists uh, various functions of the cortical midline. Uh, in general, um, the cortical midline is, is uh, important for helping maintain and represent a sense of self. Okay, so. Uh, labeling of stimuli as being self-referential, monitoring the environment for self-referential stimuli, um, evaluating stimuli uh, with regards to how they pertain to oneself, uh, linking of those stimuli with one's own personal content, uh, context, uh, autobiographical memory, um, uh, theory of mind, so covert mimicking of others' mental states, thinking about how other people are thinking. All of these types of functions, uh, these self-functions and a lot of social cognition has been attributed to uh, the cortical midline uh, with a strong emphasis on the medial prefrontal cortex. This is just a summary from a, a different meta-analysis. Each one of these symbols here indicates uh, a, a reported uh, peak activation um, from a variety of types of tasks. So uh, yellow dots here tasks that involve evaluating, evaluating self-knowledge, uh, perceiving, uh, making judgments about other people, uh, mentalizing, which refers to this integration of stimuli from the external environment with our uh, ongoing uh, sense of self or how we're feeling. Um, so on. Um, now what really got me started was in this, uh, along this line was a study I did several years ago which was aimed at understanding how the system of major and minor keys might be represented in the brain and trying to identify brain regions that follow a piece of music as it moves through this space. And uh, I'll explain in a moment what these uh, colorful rectangles represent. But at this point, we'd just like to say that the one region which consistently within subjects across multiple sessions and across subjects showed this um, tonality tracking, uh, the one region that was consistent was the medial prefrontal cortex. 
Um, so that kind of led me down this path. Now, activation of the medial prefrontal cortex has been observed in other music studies also. Um, here's a study by Amblad and Robert Zatori where they had a piano melody to which they then set a chordal accompaniment and they varied the degree of consonance or dissonance in that accompaniment, really the amount of dissonance, by adding 7th, 9th, 11th, and 13th chords. Um, and what they found was that the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, a region that's very much involved in uh, emotion processing, and a more dorsal region, um, responded more to uh, those excerpts that uh, were more consonant. Um, the two studies that have examined uh, familiarity judgments to music, so if you just play pieces of music and have a person label them as familiar or unfamiliar, uh, engaging in that type of judgment uh, strongly engages the medial prefrontal cortex. And then down here is the result from a study which compared familiarity of music with familiarity for odors. And so these spots here are regions that responded more strongly both to familiar music and familiar odors. Uh, which I personally find quite fascinating because I think one of the um, uh, other types of sensory stimuli that can really trigger a very strong uh, memory, autobiographical memory, is smell. Um, so, you know, it's leaves that you might smell walking down the street reminds you of when you were in college, or, you know, cookies reminding you of your grandmother's house. Um, so this is an intriguing connection, and we'll see these spots come up again in a little bit. Now, sort of the final piece of diverse evidence here um, pertains to uh, Alzheimer's disease. And what there's a tremendous amount of anecdotal evidence for and a slowly growing body of uh, <coughs> rigorous studies demonstrating is that uh, you can take a piece of music that was um, likely familiar to a person with Alzheimer's uh, that was familiar to them from their past and this might be a person who you can't even have a conversation with anymore and yet you play them this piece of music and all of a sudden they might start singing along, they might start moving, basically they become more cognitively and emotionally engaged than caregivers will often even suspect. So I've gotten lots of emails from people saying, I had no idea, you know, that um, uh, you know, this would happen, you know, when, when we, you know, when I played my husband this, you know, music from his past, you know, so those types of anecdotes. Now, what's um, kind of interesting is that if one charts, this is from work by Paul Thompson at UCLA, if one charts the progression of atrophy, the cortical atrophy uh, over the course of Alzheimer's, uh, where the degree of atrophy, so more atrophy uh, is shown in red, less atrophy in blue, uh, what's interesting is that the medial prefrontal cortex is relatively spare okay, across the progression of the disease, uh, suggesting that this may provide a neural substrate for this integration of music, memories, and emotions. Okay, so, um, so what we did um, was for 
for individuals who uh, had at least 30% of the songs uh, that we played them evoke memories, we asked, do you want to come do this in the scanner? And we had them uh, run through a similar version of the experiment in the scanner. Um, and I'll just explain what we had them uh, do in the scanner uh, in describing the statistical design matrix that we use to evaluate the data. Um, so this is for two subjects here. We have time running from left to right, and each row of bars here codes a different variable. And the color scale just indicates whether or not the value on that variable is negative, so in black is negative, or white is positive. So what's going on here is this bottom row just is our variable for whether or not music is playing. So it's just on if music is playing, one excerpt here, it's off if it's not, just is music playing or not. Now following each excerpt while the person's lying in the scanner, they then answer uh, several questions uh, uh, through uh, via button presses to indicate the degree of autobiographical salience, familiarity, and valence associated, emotional valence associated with the excerpt they just heard. And based on those responses, we can then code these additional variables for the autobiographical salience and familiarity. So for example, this first song, it was very familiar to the subject, but it did not evoke any sort of memory, and it was mildly pleasing. The second song was familiar, strongly uh, memory evoking, and very pleasing. Okay, so that, that's how uh, this, this model works. Okay, so what I'll show now is the summary uh, across uh, 13 subjects. And um, what I'm showing now are the results in different colors for these three variables of interest. Um, I should note, and I have it on a different slide, that uh, if we just model music playing or not playing, we see robust activation throughout the auditory cortex, uh, as one would expect. But these are now more nuanced changes in uh, blood oxygenation level as a function of these variables. Uh, now, what I'm showing here are slices through the brain starting in the left hemisphere um, and progressing through the midline, and then back out to the right hemisphere. Um, these are simply coronal sections, so sections going like this, starting at the front of the head, here are the eyeballs, okay? left hemisphere, right hemisphere, and just progressing back towards uh, um, yeah, back of the brain. Okay, so what we see, uh, there's a wide variety of areas modulated by the familiarity of the music. Um, and these areas include both uh, auditory areas as well as several premotor or motor areas, uh, including the lateral prefrontal cortex, uh, including region uh, Broca's area here, so uh, very involved in speech production, um, the medial premotor areas, also the cerebellum, which is involved in in many types of cognitive tasks, but I think in this context, a lot of this activity shown in green is reflecting sort of that internal singing along with the familiar music. Um, now, most germane to the primary hypothesis are areas shown in red, um, 
which were regions that increased their activity more with increasing autobiographical salience. And indeed what we see is that in the medial prefrontal cortex, primarily in the dorsal, so the upper aspect, we see that that region responds more as the music becomes more memory evoking. As the music becomes more pleasing, we see activation here in the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is known for many other types of studies to be very involved in uh, emotion and emotion regu regulation. Um, so, so far so good. This um, provides basic support for the hypothesis and everything I just described now I'm actually going to show in larger slides. So, the sensory motor uh, regions here and then the, um, the medial prefrontal uh, cortex, autobiographical salience uh, here also interacting with uh, the emotional valence. Okay. What I'd like to do is actually find a tighter link between uh, the music and the memories. Okay, so in that particular model, I was just modeling whether or not music is playing over 30-second excerpts or not. But that really doesn't provide a very detailed description of the music. Um, and yet we know that so much of our engagement really depends on the details of uh, the music. Um, so what I'm going to do here is to take a computational model which describes time-varying tonal structure in the music and use the output of this model to identify brain regions that follow the piece of music as it moves through tonal space. Um, so I want to do this. Um, um, one of the considerations is because both music and memories unfold in time. So when we uh, are experiencing one of these memories, its onset might be very sudden, but it's not like the entire memory is there all at once. Rather, it's a remembering episode that plays itself out uh, over some span of time. And uh, similarly, music is evolving in time, and so, and serving as a retrieval cue for the various aspects of the memory or for the thoughts that are then associated with the memories. And so the idea is to use the music as a sort of pointer uh, to the memories. Okay, and use the model of the music as a pointer to the memories. Okay, so how is this model going to work? So um, Western tonal music relies on tonal contexts. So we talk about uh, pieces of music being in different keys such as G major, B major, B minor, so on. And um, keys can be thought of as sets of notes, um, technical term is pitch classes, that are named after the most perceptually stable note, referred to as the tonic. So um, one octave shown here on a piano keyboard, so doubling in frequency is divided into 12 uh, equal frequency steps on a logarithmic scale. And seven of those 12 uh, pitch classes is said to belong to the key. So these green dots here illustrate those notes, those pitch classes which belong to the key of G major. Um, now we can talk about um, distances between keys. Um, and what I'm showing here are in red are the notes for D major 
And we see that they largely overlap with those for G major, except for one right here. Okay? So in a musical sense, this makes the keys of G major and D major very closely related. It's very easy for a composer to begin a piece of music in G major, have it move over to D major, and then have it move, uh, move back again. Uh, but we can contrast this now with the uh, uh, notes belonging to F-sharp major shown in yellow, and we see that there's very little overlap between those uh, for F-sharp major and those for G major. So in a musical sense, uh, these keys are more distant from each other, and it's harder for a composer to go smoothly from G major to F-sharp major and uh, back again. So in... Um, in music theory, we, we talk about this relationship of keys, or this idea of tonal space. Uh, a very prominent construct is this idea of a circle of fifths, which simply means that um, each adjacent key on the circle uh, shares um, all of its notes in common with the previous one except for one note. Um, and the reason it's called the circle of fifths is because the fifth scale degree, so the fifth note in C major becomes the tonic of G major. The fifth scale degree of G is D, so that becomes the tonic of this key. So within any given key, the two most prevalent notes, and those that are perceived as most perceptually stable, are the tonic and the dominant. The dominant being kind of the second most prevalent note in a key, and that becomes the tonic of the next key. So uh, if you play the substitution game, uh, you end up back where you started, both for the major keys and for the minor keys shown here in um, uh, uh, magenta. Now, these, the sense of key and, and the, the fact that certain notes are more commonly associated with a particular key is what gives rise to expectations that we form uh, when we're listening to music. So I'll play now a sequence of chords that begins and ends in C major. Oops, maybe I won't. What happened there? Oh, here we go. Um, I thought I was working off the newer version of the slide. Um, okay. Uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll play this example, then I'll explain what just happened here on the right. So I'll play a sequence of chords that begins and ends in, in, uh, in uh, B major. <coughs> okay, so nice, complete, pleasing chord progression. Now I'll play the exact same initial sequence of chords, but I'll replace the final... Uh, with the tonic, or the most stable chord, in C major. So it would be like going from here to here on the circle of this. Okay, so very jarring, uh, jarring uh, change there. And so that just illustrates that when we prime a particular key, we're generating expectations about what notes will fit and what notes won't fit. So if you um, do experiments, and this is work done by uh, Carol Krumhansel, started here at Stanford um, 
when she was a graduate student with uh, Roger Shepard. Um, if you establish a particular tonal context, okay, and then you just choose all these different notes as probe events, and you ask how well does that probe event fit with the preceding context on a scale of one to seven, you um, you get this um, subjective uh, assessment of the distance, of the perceptual distance between the context and that particular probe event. And so if you play this game for all the various possible combinations, and then use multidimensional scaling to ask what sort of space do I have to arrange all of the keys on in order to preserve those subjective distances, the result is a map that looks like this, where you can see that we preserve the circle of fifth structure uh, for the major keys and now uh, also for the minor keys in relation to one another. So I should point out here that the top edge and the bottom edge are the same, so it wraps onto itself, and the left edge and the right edge are the same. So really the, the construct or the geometric form that we have here is a torus. Okay? And so this can be thought of as a geometric representation for the system of major and minor keys that make up tonal music. And so it's really a nice construct because it simultaneously reflects music theory, cognitive psychology, and it turns out a parsimonious organization of the pitch statistics in Western tonal music. So essentially the probability structure in, uh, in the music we hear. Now what it also means is that a piece of music will create a pattern of activation on the torus that changes through time. So by virtue of all the different notes in the melody or in the chord progressions, the particular harmonic progressions that are used, um, uh, those are going to create a, a sense of movement in this space. So sometimes the notes will be more characteristic of C major, and the next moment they might be more characteristic of G major. And so a piece of music will create a pattern of movement on the surface of the torus. And this pattern could be regarded as a signature of the piece of music. Okay, so here's a, an illustration of this. So this is the torus laid out flat again. The, the letters here indicate general tonal centers, and red indicates a region on the torus that's particularly strongly represented in the music at a particular moment in time. Um, Now, there's a whole process by taking the audio and projecting it to the toroidal surface, which in the interest of time I'm going to skip over right now, but I do have a set of slides on that so that if you're interested afterwards, um, I can show you in more detail. Um, I kind of think that this is, it, you know, it kind of tears at the heartstrings, but I do find it a little schlocky. And um, so here's a slightly more elegant example, I think. 
set of slides that I'll skip now, but I'm happy to show you later, is um, uh, describe this time-varying pattern um, quantitatively. It, uh, one can basically represent it with 34 uh, variables that um, are the spatial, shoot, I should just, now that I'm describing words, I should just use the pictures. But, uh, basically, um, I'll show later, there's a model, one can decompose this into the spatial frequencies and there are 34 variables that describe the time varying pattern. And those uh, 34 variables are entered into the statistical model um, that's used to analyze the brain activation data that's being recorded as people are listening to these 30 second excerpts. Um, so this is now to summarize the, what I'm calling the tonality tracking responses. So the colored regions here are regions where uh, significant numbers of subjects showed this type of tonality tracking behavior. And uh, much to my amazement and delight when I got the results back from this analysis, um, the largest region that exhibited this tonality tracking was indeed the medial prefrontal cortex. Um, in the same regions that were showing the increased responses to music that was increasingly familiar or increasingly memory evoking. Um, and if one uh, calculates the model separately for those songs that are memory evoking and those that aren't, and uh, expresses the, the ratio of the variance that's explained by each of those models in a color scale, uh, one can see the biasing of the tonality tracking activity in these regions, either towards autobiographical songs shown in red or relatively unbiased as shown in green. So I think this provides further support for um, this idea that the medial prefrontal cortex is somehow linking together music and autobiographical memories. Um, okay, so now. Um, I'd like to take a bit of time to talk about work that's still in progress. It's really further analyses of these data that I find to be quite exciting. And they relate to um, 
modeling this tonality tracking uh, on multiple time scales and the various time scales of uh, psychological processes. Um, so one can talk about multiple time scales in music, and this is um, an example from a uh, paper uh, by Fred Lerdahl and Carol Krumhansel, where uh, what's being represented here is simply the idea that um, there are tonal centers, or one can think of tonal centers being established uh, in local uh, windows of time, or that there are tonal centers and tonal implications that span much longer periods of time. So there's essentially this hierarchical organization of tonality, um, which interestingly can be related to ideas of tonal tension. So how much, uh, which in turn um, is regarded as one of the ways in uh, which we develop emotion uh, in music. So you build tonal tension, uh, you then release tonal tension, and that ebb and flow of tonal tension um, lets uh, emotions follow. And there's some physiological data um, that goes along with that also. Um, here's work done by Craig Sapp here at Karma, um, illustrates a similar uh, idea. Um, so if you take a piece of music, and now you can talk about the local tonality that's established at different time scales. So in this triangle here, um, the window of time over which you're assessing what key or what tonal center is the piece of music in is represented along the vertical axis and then overall time is, is uh, running this way. And so what you can see is that um, across these different time scales there are different estimates of what key you're in. So the color here indicates the estimate of what key one is in. And so there's much more variation at this faster time scale than at the slower time scale. Okay. So I'm going to uh, end up doing a very similar thing. So we can talk about multiple time scales in musical and psychological processes. So at short time scales, uh, those under about one second, we can talk about transitions between notes in the melody or chords in a harmonic sequence. And if there are words that accompany the music, then it's on that time scale that we also have changes between the uh, syllables in words or perhaps words uh, in the lyrics. Okay? It's also the time scale um, that a lot of the action systems are engaged on. So if there's either covert or overt singing or rhythmic movements along with the music, then the time scale of those movements, of those actions, also can be characterized at a faster time scale. At an intermediate time scale, so time scale spanning a few seconds, we can talk about musical or lyrical phrases uh, in the music. And then we can uh, perhaps think about other psychological processes such as memory retrieval processes in the case of music evoked autobiographical memories which are essentially uh, piecing together uh, the narrative or the mental movie if you will that's playing in your mind. And we also um, have development of emotional responses uh, 
on that intermediate time scale. And then finally, at longer time scales, so about 10 seconds here, um, often this is the time scale that's used for ascribing a key to an entire uh, piece of music or move or you know shorter uh, seg segments of the music uh, or well, multiple phrases, let's say. Um, but at that longer time scale, that's where we also have influences on mood. So kind of longer term uh, emotional responses that are associated with the music. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this model of music moving through tonal space. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to use different integration windows uh, that are counting up the pitches that are occurring in the music and providing the estimate of the tonal center. Uh, so at the fast time scale, this is a leaky integrator with a 200 millisecond time constant. Here's going to be a 2 second time constant and here's the model running with a 10 second uh, time constant. fluctuation uh, that correspond to the movement on each of these different time scales. And uh, so this is uh, summarized here and I'll, I'll uh, make some of these panels larger. But just to orient you, here's a set of slices in the left hemisphere starting on the side going towards the middle in the right hemisphere. And then this is for the fast time constant, the intermediate time constant, and the slowest time constant. And what one can see is that at some time constants, certain brain regions are active, but they're not active at the longer time constants. And if you ask, so at the fast time constant, what are the regions that are active here? This is the auditory cortex and premotor areas. So this is a sensory motor circuit. In fact, this is when you're covertly uh, speaking or singing to yourself, so maintaining information and so-called phonologic loop, these are the areas that become active. So they're selectively active at the fastest time scale, but not at the slowest one. Uh, now, what's interesting is also at the fast time scale, but not at the slowest time scales, one sees uh, activity within uh, visual areas, and also now a little bit in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. Um, this is kind of interesting. Um, it turns out that if you take uh, visual stimuli that are just flickering at about this rate of five times uh, a second or so, uh, that you can drive a resonance between the visual areas and the medial prefrontal cortex, which is related to um, the subjective um, or to the perception of what one is seeing, uh, where you could either see one of two different uh, images. So the one that you're subjectively aware of uh, ends up driving this coupling between the uh, medial prefrontal and posterior areas. Um, so um, 
I think this may have something to do with the kind of the chain of visual images that plays itself out in one one's mind. Um, let's see. The uh, so the medial prefrontal cortex was the one region that showed tonality tracking on all of the time scales. And what's interesting is that at the increasingly longer time scales, um, the activity became more extensive and it extended more into the ventral medial prefrontal areas, so those that are more uh, associated with emotion processing. This, this was what actually, predicting this was what kind of drove me to, to do this analysis. Um, and then at the intermediate and slower time scales, there's a, uh, there are lateral prefrontal areas um, that I believe may have to do with some of this episodic sequencing. So the sequencing together of the memory content that's being uh, retrieved and reconstructed into a remembering episode. Um, okay, so just to summarize, uh, music evoked autobiographical remembering experiences are multifaceted as are our interactions with music in general. Um, they engage brain areas that underlie the perception action cycle and also that underlie our orienting of attention toward the external environment and orientation towards the self. Um, I didn't really describe this, but this is sort of a broader framework that I think about uh, this work in. One of them, this is a slide from Joaquin Fuster, suggesting that the front half of the brain is primarily responsible for action, whereas the back half is primarily responsible for perception. And there's this constant interaction at various levels of ab abstraction that helps facilitate uh, smooth interactions with our environment. And I think music, engaging with music, is sort of a perfect model system for, for looking at this uh, just because it almost obligatorily engages both perception and action and our pleasant experiences with music are those where that sort of interaction is seamless. Um, and then the other sort of profound aspect of functional brain organization is this idea that these regions in blue are regions that are very involved in cognitive control, orienting our attention to the external environment, making decisions, uh, detecting stimuli, when activity in these regions is low, activity in the regions in orange, so the medial prefrontal cortex here notably, regions that are more associated with representations of self become more active. And it turns out that there's sort of this um, uh, anti-correlated activity within these two large-scale networks. And um, what I'm seeing is that uh, various aspects of this engagement with music uh, drives parts of both of these networks. Um, so music moves in tonal space. Um, through repeated listening to music, we implicitly learn how tonal space is structured. Um, and the model of music's movement in tonal space can be used to identify brain areas that follow those movements and support the various experiences we have as we interact with the music on multiple time scales. Um, I'd like to acknowledge some of the people who helped uh, with the data collection in this project um, and also uh, partial grant support from the uh, MetaNexus Institute. And thanks to all of you for your time.
a bit more about your uh, algorithm or model for how you get the colors tracking the tonal centers and using Grofflemichanema as an example. I guess it started in E flat based on. And so the, this, the accompaniment is generally a simple E flat chord, and the melody is an FDC against that, you know, with a repeated D, you know, which is the 9, uh, 7, 6. So, uh, you know, if, if I'm correct in, the, in my answers, now how, how would you have all those other things other than the key of E flat? Yeah. The initial bar. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, yeah. At the very beginning, the, the B section of that piece ends up oh, going through quite a, a nice modulation. Yeah, which is why, why I use that. Uh, so just quickly, the way the, the model works is take an audio file, pass it through a model of the transduction process that happens in the cochlea. Um, so this is one of several auditory uh, nerve models from from Van uh, Mercier and Martins. And then, um, so this just simulates uh, firing patterns in uh, kind of along the uh, basilar membrane, if you will. Um, so the pitch extraction happens through a process of autocorrelation. So it's a temporal model of uh, pitch perception. And within each of these bands, uh, you perform autocorrelation of these simulated spiking patterns in short time windows, and so what that gives you is an estimate of the pitch content over time. So time is running this way, um, this is the sum autocorrelation function, so dark bars here indicate peaks in that autocorrelation function, and it's the spacing between these bars that gives you an estimate of uh, the pitch that's present, the fundamental frequency. So what's shown here, each of these vertical stripes corresponds to a single note in an arpeggiated melody. So the first four notes here are increasing in pitch. Okay? So that's the model that provides an estimate of the pitch content at any given moment in time. And then it's this, mod, this representation that's filtered with those different time constants. So a fast time constant that now just emphasizes really the short-term pitch information or if you integrate over a longer um, amount of time, you build up the prevalence of the different pitches, so the pitch distributions that are present, and it's those pitch distributions that are um, correlated with the sense of key, where each different key has sort of a canonical uh, pitch distribution, certainly when you integrate over longer periods of time. Um, then to project into the torus, one train uses a self-organizing map in this case to take the pitch distributions at each different moment in time and create a mapping from a particular pitch distribution to a single location on the torus. And uh, the way the algorithm works is that neighboring regions on the torus uh, well, when you're updating, when you're training the weight matrix, you train both the um, most strongly correlated pitch vector with a particular uh, vector here in the weight matrix, as well as its neighbors. So that makes it so that the pitch probability distributions are smoothly varying across the surface. And down here is an illustration of a trained weight matrix where different pitch probability distributions are mapping to different locations. 
Now, in the case of the girl from Ipanema, one of the reasons I think why it's moving around so much is that uh, in that recording, the voice is very uh, prevalent, right? It's, it's very salient uh, compared to the background uh, instruments, and so I think it strongly influences uh, the particular move, the, the movement that's being done with this two-second integration window. Um, so it tends to regard a lot of what the voice is doing uh, ultimately as being, uh, you know, the estimate for the for the tonal center. Um, so it's kind of a combination of you know what the instruments are doing and then the voice on top. Okay. Um, I was hoping you could elaborate on the state of research around the for instrumental pieces in autobiographical inscription where it's not a karaoke and you know, it was never put to words. And what well, that might tell us about spoken language. Yeah, that's that's a um, um, excellent project to pursue. It's one that I haven't yet, and I, I don't know if anybody has. Um, obviously, not everybody grew up listening to the, the Billboard pop and R&B charts. Um, Many of us grew up listening to classical music, much of which may also be associated with um, autobiographical memories. But it's a little more difficult through this sort of random selection process uh, to identify the salient pieces of music for any given individual. So it's kind of a tougher problem to crack in that regard, uh, which is kind of the main reason that I you know, haven't pursued that yet. But I think that that would be very important in particular for where one sees the effects of familiarity being able to dissociate how much of that activation is being driven uh, by the lyrical content uh, as compared to uh, non-lyrical uh, processes. Um, Peter, well, it was a wonderful talk. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to ask a general question about this uh, resonance between the uh, proximity, the, the moral proximity, of the uh, musical, uh, especially tonal recognition and autobiographical memories, uh, when you transplant it into a different question, um, what are the implications, or does anybody know uh, what the implications would be for pre-tonal, post-tonal, um, non-Western, or something that's removed from the tonal context? I mean, is there any? Um, are there any pointers on this? Um, yeah, not that I know of. That's another one of these really challenging questions. Um, <laughs> this is one of those beautiful things about Western tonal music is that it does <laughs> conform to this really nice geometry, whereas I really don't know how well other musical systems will conform. Uh, with regard to perception of, say, atonal music or other forms of music, um, I think that as people who have largely grown up in uh, West, in a Western tone music culture, we're just bombarded with the statistics of Western tone music that we can't but help internalize those. And so when we then listen to music that deviates from those structures, we're still listening to it through our Western tone music filter. And I think that that's in part why a lot of it is um, perhaps difficult to listen to or challenging, uh, challenging to listen to. Um, obviously, I, I do believe there's a, a, a strong role in learning here, so one can learn other systems, but I really 
don't know what appropriate geometries would be or how well they uh, lend themselves to these types of analyses. I wonder if you could share a little of your, where you're going next for this. In the last couple of questions, people sort of mentioned ideas that are a little beyond ones you're working at. And I can see several areas. Obviously, you're doing wonderful work figuring out physiology of human brains and perception and memory and things like that. And you, another, you might invent new ways for affecting people with your music by watching how effective it is. Another, you could be a better artist or musician. Another might be an interpretation of sociology and the effects on culture that uh, have stored up in our brains over our lifetime. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you're motivated. So the simple question is, not only what got you into it, but what do you sort of see beyond the horizon for yourself and your great protégés that follow in your footsteps? Um, well, thanks for the question. <laughs> um, well, obviously, many different directions. I mean, one very tangible and applied one that I'm trying to pursue here is to replicate all of this work uh, in older adults across the lifespan to try to uh, substantiate, um, you know, or to provide a bit of an understanding for why Alzheimer's individuals may have this spared recognition of music from their past, and so provide motivation for having relatively cost-effective music therapy interventions. You know, so that's very applied. Um, things I'm interested in at a deeper neuroscience level have to do with the interaction of um, genre knowledge and genre preferences uh, with uh, emotion regulation. So obviously we choose to listen to some music and not other music. We select it in, uh, in ways it's appropriate to the circumstances or the type of mood we want to induce in ourselves or, or in others. And um, so I think that one could learn a lot about the sort of affective decision-making circuitry in the brain using this type, you know, these types of paradigms. And you know, along the way, um, you know, for the for the music theorists, the musicologists, um, um, you know, I, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd be pleased if um, people found inspiration in this to you know think about tonal space in different ways and. Um, I'm interested in understanding how, you know, when we learn about particular genres which should be associated with particular trajectories of movement in this space, you know, how those are represented. So, indeed, using it as a, a way of analyzing and, and thinking, about, uh, thinking about music. Have you done any work examining the differences between a solo instrument versus an orchestral uh, interaction with the brain? Um, uh, kind of. Um, I have done some studies looking at uh, how we uh, focus our attention selectively on the single instrument that's playing as part of an ensemble. Um, so that's probably the closest I've, I've come to that. But um, I, I don't know if that's where you were headed or what, what have you found. In other words, are there differences between where a brain would interact if it's a complex piece, like an orchestral piece, as opposed to a, a simpler piece, like a, a solo instrument? Yeah, so I haven't uh, performed analyses as, as a function of complexity. Mm -hmm. it, it's certainly the case that when you do have a complex uh, musical scene, 
and uh, you are now having to orient your attention onto one instrument or to try to distribute it, <laughs> that attention-orienting regions in the parietal cortex become very engaged. In fact, the general, the brain's general attention-orienting circuitry uh, becomes more active uh, when you demand uh, people use their attention in that way. What's interesting is, is that you can actually then bias um, activity within those networks as a function of the task you give people. So if you give them a task of trying to detect wrong notes, then um, which is kind of mirrors the typical type of paradigm that's been used to study attention, so target detection, um, you activate a greater extent of uh, the attention-orienting circuits. Um, however, when you uh, ask people to attend more uh, globally without necessarily detecting wrong notes, um, then only part of the attentional circuitry, the parietal circuitry is activated, but some of the target detection circuitry then goes away. Um, if you ask people to uh, listen to the melodies as though they were trying to memorize the part that the instrument is playing, then you start getting uh, dorsolateral prefrontal regions which have been shown to be active in memory encoding. Those become selectively active in that type of condition. So it's really the nature of listening even shapes profoundly uh, kind of the dynamic configuration of, of uh, brain networks. Yeah. Along those lines, I was uh, wondering if you can distinguish sort of recognizing uh, the music or it's pattern and say, oh yes, this is girl from Ipanema, uh, versus the specific, you know, recording almost, because there were different aspects of that. Yeah, I, yeah I, I haven't done that, I mean, it's also something that I'm very interested in, you know, of course, limitations of time and money to do all these things. But, um, yeah, doing some sort of machine learning, you know, pattern extraction on these things to, uh, to learn to discriminate nuances in the trajectories and yeah, I mean that, that's all very good stuff to do, but I, I haven't done that yet. Thank you, Peter. Okay, thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.